That's the challenge, isn't it? It's the very thing that connects us. Is the very thing that leaves us more isolated than we've ever been before. Uh, some of you are holding in your hands uh, a piece of technology that's changed Christianity in an incredible way. You may not even see how. And by that, I hope I'm not referring to your cell phone. I hope I'm referring to the Bible. Because the Bible was originally a technological advancement, at least in the present form that we hold it today or as it sits on our shelves collecting dust for some of us. The the Bible was uh, an advance because originally it wasn't possible to hold the Scripture in your hands. We forget that this book, the Bible, is... uh, what caused real problems for people in the past. There was a guy named John Wycliffe in the 1380s who did something uh, that was considered heresy in that day. What he did was he translated this book into English. And after his death, which happened in 1384, the Archbishop of Canterbury considered him a heretic, had his bones exhumed and burned publicly. But his fate was better than in 1536 when William Tyndale had it even worse. He was burned at the stake. And why was that? For translating the words of Scripture into English. In his words, the church forbid owning or reading the Bible in order to control and restrict the teachings and to enhance their power and importance. We don't know this history. In fact, there was a a, a council that came together with a, a decision that was made at Toulouse. This was in, let me get this date right, 1229 AD. Listen to the the, the decision that was made there. We prohibit also that the laity should be permitted to have the books of the Old or New Testament. Uh, uh, but we mostly strictly, uh, we most strictly forbid their having any translation of these books. And then in 1234 at the Council of Tarragona, listen to this decision. No one may possess the books of the Old and New Testaments in the Romance language. And if anyone possesses them, he must turn them over to the local bishop within eight days after promulgation of this decree so that they may be burned. But all of this changes with another technological advancement that comes in 1450. It's the advancement called the Gutenberg Press. Uh, Holly and I actually got to see the first Gutenberg Bible as it was on display recently when we were in Washington, D.C. last year. It was leaders like Martin Luther King who were trying to take things back to Scripture itself and away from just the tradition of the church that had gotten out of hand. And he promoted something called sola scriptura, which just means scripture alone. It was this desire to go back to the source. But none of this would have been possible without this technological advancement. Think about it this way. Roughly 75% of Christian history, of 1,500 years, there was no such thing as having a morning Bible reading. And we take this book for granted. We're part of a quarter of Christian history that had an opportunity to actually read scripture in front of us. It was forbidden, and it was easy to forbid because there was no printing press. But how are you supposed to enforce a ban against people reading the Bible when now everyone has a phone with this thing on it? I believe this was a wonderful advancement in Christian history. But every positive gift of technology, as we've seen in the series, also has a dark side. And so what happened was we became very independent and the locus of authority really came on the individual rather than the community of faith that read together. These letters that were written by Paul were originally read in the context of a community. And unfortunately what's happened is this Protestant church actually has splintered into thousands of denominations. See, this technology is a gift, isn't it? But it always has a dark side we don't see ahead of time. 
And this move from communal events to isolation and individual you know, realities that we live into in our phones, it has its impact. In fact, I saw a few cartoons on the internet a few weeks ago that I thought would be interesting to kind of show you how this has shaped and changed our culture. One is the park. The park has changed, hasn't it? It's really sad to see it. Even our McDonald's, right, used to have at least play places to get people going. But now they've even got screens and games so kids can engage there as well. We've lost the ability to play together. But it's not just there. It's also at family time. You can't read the bubble there. It says, isn't it great to have some quality time with the family? How many of you Thanksgiving and Christmas look more like this than how it used to look? In some ways, it's taking over our lives. Another maybe funnier way to look at this is about life on the beach. Have you seen this one? Check this out. Make sure you apply sunscreen because the tan lines look different than they used to. Just think about how technology has moved from community to isolation. If you wanted to go see a movie years ago, you would have to go to the local cinema. You'd take in the matinee and there'd be a community of people gathered around a large screen. And we still do that from time to time, but it's clear that movies are actually going out of business, right? I mean, theaters are struggling in ways they didn't because of the advent of you know, home movies and now being able to stream them online. So it went from the community theater and the cinema. Now, uh, years ago, it, it came to a, a shared TV in the family room. And eventually we had LED TVs in each of the bedrooms. It seemed like more than we had people in the house when some of us have TVs. Uh, But now it's as clear as having, you know, to binge watch a a Netflix show that happens on your iPad or your your iPhone. We do that almost as individuals. Sometimes we engage still as families, but it's a private enterprise. Music is the same way. Years ago, you would have to go to a live performance. Someone would have to create that music, right? And you would go to the orchestra on a Saturday night, and the community would gather and see this incredible performance. A few years ago, Holly and I were in Boston. We just uh, walked out into the city park there, the commons, and outside of that, and there was Boston Pops uh, Symphony Orchestra that was just doing this performance in the public. That doesn't happen like it used to. Now, we want to engage music. Well, it, it went to the the record player, right, for some of you originally. At least it was a communal event often. And then it moved to the transistor radio and then to the boom box. But today, if you look at it, it more often happens in earbuds than it does anywhere else. This community experience of music and film and so many different things has been narrowed down to the taste that each one of us has. Just look around at an airport if you're there later today and what you'll realize is we're all in our own little worlds, aren't we? And earbuds, well, they're just symbols to people around us to let us know we're really not open to a conversation. We want to be left to our own devices. We have more access than we've ever had before, more access to music, more access to information. I had this conversation with a preacher friend, uh, a buddy of mine, Mike Cope, and he was talking about, uh, he was a Cardinals fan growing up, and in 1967, the Cardinals won the World Series. It's a massive thing for their family that was long and just they listened on the radio uh, uh, to those events at that time. And, and he talked about in the 70s, they would have this ongoing family dialogue and fight at the dinner table. And it was over, did the Cardinals win the series in 67 in six games or in seven games? And, and at the end of the dinner, they still didn't know the answer. They just enjoyed their fight together, right? But now, what do you do? Hey, Alexa, who won the 1967 World Series and how many games did it take? And you've got your answer. See, years ago, we still had debates. And today, arguments are shut down. Well, in some ways they are. But in other ways, we're struggling to find the right information, aren't we? See, all of this comes at a cost. Because as we gain more access to things, we've got to realize that we're also giving more access to things. Some of you have seen the trial recently of Zuckerberg kind of being put on the stand to try to answer for where all of our information is going. Now, all of us did click that button and didn't read it, let's be honest, right? But 
But we realize our information is being given over. Our, our, our inform- it's not free Facebook. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, is the moral, right? But our information to foreign governments and to businesses. We don't know where all it's going, and it's being used against us. They know us better than we know ourselves. Have you considered the power that app developers have in our lives? There is an all-important question that I want to beg you to think more of next time you download an app. Because every time you download an app, you get a question. And the question is this. Do you agree to let us send you push notifications on this app? And we don't think about what that one decision impacts for the rest of our lives, but it impacts a lot. Because all of a sudden, you have notifications that come to you. There is an all-powerful person that a lot of you don't know about and that exists right now with his or her finger on a button. It's your news app that you've allowed the opportunity to push breaking news events to you. In fact, by the end of the sermon, there's a good chance you'll probably get another one, right? Somebody somewhere has the power in this moment to interrupt whatever's being said or whatever's happening in your life by the push of a button because they decide what they're going to push to you is more important than whatever's going on in your life. And that can be a ding on your phone. It can be a buzz that happens because you turn your phone to, to silent or... You know, it can be actually something that's pushed to your watch, right? I mean, it's amazing how interruptible we've allowed ourselves to become. We don't know, you don't know who this person is, but they have the power in the most important moments of your life to distract you from what's right in front of you. And they're not taking into account if you're at a dance recital. They're not taking into account if your first child's being born. They're not taking into account anything along those lines. What they're taking into account is that they think this is more important than what's in front of you. And you've asked for it. In 2013, the Oxford English Dictionary added a new word to the dictionary. They added several of them, but this one is the word FOMO. It's actually an acronym for a phrase that means fear of missing out. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you, this may be a new uh, vocabulary opportunity for you. This is the definition that the Oxford English Dictionary gave to FOMO. Fear of missing out is an anxiety that an exciting or interesting event may be happening elsewhere, often aroused by posts seen on a social media website. Any of you ever experienced FOMO before? Well, some of you may not want to admit to it, but all of us, to some degree, understand this. Because this fear is not actually a new fear that's been developed by app developers or our cell phones. It's tapping in to something that's been here since the beginning of time. It's actually a very ancient fear. Because centuries ago, our survival was dependent on our ability not to miss out on things, right? Because the reality was death or life hung in the balance between us knowing and identifying a threat and being able to move because of it. I mean, just think about this for a moment, right? If there was a food source and you lived in a community that depended on food sources, it was important that you got to that food source first before the rest of the community or other tribes took it because then you wouldn't have the life that was in that animal or whatever the food source was. It was important to know that there was an enemy or warring tribe. And if you missed out on that information, you might actually be the one who dies. You've heard it said before, right? When a bear's chasing you, it's not important that you're the fastest. You just don't want to be the slowest. And that instinct in all of us to not be the slowest, to be aware of our surroundings, is this idea of FOMO. It's this idea of not missing out on the threats and the opportunities that are around us. And all of that serves us very well and years ago, centuries ago, when threats were real, but now it's being used against us by people who are showing threat to us that's not actually threat at all. It happens all the time in our lives. People who are pushing fear into our lives, and we're afraid that if we miss out, well, bad things might happen the ways they used to centuries ago. 
It's that fight or flight response, isn't it? There's actually a part of our brains called the amygdala that, that actually is supposed to identify this response. And, and so we look at the threat and we decide how do we respond to it. It's this natural gift that God has given to us. But good marketers and advertisers have incredible ways of taking the incredible gifts of the body that God has given to us and turning them against us. And I would suggest to you that app developers are doing that right now. They know and understand this instinct that's bred in all of us, right? And they're using it against us in ways that we're not even aware of. They understand the psychology of FOMO. In fact, they're playing on our fears and anxieties to keep us on our apps. Because the way you monetize an app is you keep people glued to it as long as possible. So they're making money off an ancient way of being concerned about what's around us and what the threats might be. And again, this has been happening for years. We all have this inbred desire to continue the species, right? God's commanded it and said it in this way, that you're to be fruitful and multiply. And marketers and advertisers understand that instinct. Because sex appeal is a way that they tie into some of the strangest products being sold with this instinct in mind that they're drawing attention to. The same is true of fear. A lot of you have watched a lot of minutes of the evening news you wish you could get back because you saw something during the sitcom that said, hey, did you know that your refrigerator may be poisoning you and your kids? Come back at 10 to find out why. And the truth is it's not going to happen at 10 o'clock. It's going to happen about 10.27, right? They're going to wait the whole time so you can find out to make sure that you're safe. That's the fear of missing out that's being played upon. FOMO is not just a, a modern problem. It predates the acronym. It predates Wi-Fi. It predates... Uh, our smartphones. It's a primeval human fear that when used in the right way is a good thing, but it can be used against us and it's harmful. And actually it's been being used against us from, since the very beginning of time. If you have your Bibles this morning, open with me if you would to Genesis chapter 3. The original sin was a sin associated with FOMO, interestingly enough. We just maybe not have read it that way before. So read with me again through this context, through this lens, Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Listen to these words. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat fruit from any, eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you'll die. You'll certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what is the serpent saying in a story? The serpent's saying is, you're missing out on something. This God who actually is trying, you think is trying to protect you, what he's actually trying to prevent you from is this great gift of knowledge that if you would find it, you would be like God. The serpent is playing into this ancient fear of missing out. And Eve and Adam, they fall right for it, don't they? And I don't think it's the last time that the evil one has used or manipulated our fear of missing out against us. In fact, most of the sins, if you think back about your life, or even your week, or maybe your day already, right? Most of those sins are actually tied to this fear of missing out. We think that around the corner, if we just had this substance, or if we just had this relationship, or this security, if we could just secure those things for ourselves, then... Well, we wouldn't have to worry about anything. And so our fear is we might be missing out on something we don't have. And if we had that thing, then we'd be secure. Then we'd have what we needed. Then pleasure would provide what we need. Then that relationship would secure us in ways we're not currently secured. Most of our sin is tied into this impulse that we might just be missing out on something. And to me, it comes down to a question that goes right back to what we talked about, what Greg opened up Scripture to us a couple weeks ago in John chapter 10. 
John 10, verse 10. Listen to these words. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, if the evil one were to actually rewrite the scripture, what the evil one would say, I think, is uh, God comes to steal real life and pleasure and joy from your life. And the way he does that is through the commandments. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, so some come and find out what you're missing out on. And what Jesus says is the opposite of that. No, no, no. The, the thief is the one who steals, kills, and destroys. What I have come is that you may have life. And so my commandments are actually the way that if you follow them, you'll find true life. I know how you're designed and how you're made, and I know what's dangerous and what's not. And, and the question for us is, do we trust Jesus or not when it comes to this? Do we believe that Jesus offers us the abundant life, or is he actually holding us back from finding that life? I want us to discuss that question in our groups this week. Come back to John 10, because this series is all about this, really, isn't it? We're talking about not just getting rid of technology. It's how do we put technology in its proper place, and a place that actually leads to life doesn't lead away from it. So do we believe Jesus, or do we believe the words of the serpent? And what might all this have to do with our technology? We're living in a culture that's filled with all trouble and no base. I didn't come up with this. Megan Trainer did, let's be honest, right? Everything in our culture is trouble right now. It's this high-frequency, high-pitched, quick-paced information that comes at us. It's all five seconds. The news cycle is 24 hours, and if it happens and it's the worst, don't worry. Just wait another day because something's coming around the corner. So we get notification and text message and emails, and all of it's this high-pitched frequency that's coming at us that doesn't have any kind of depth to it, that doesn't have any kind of grounding to it. It's just this kind of quick, high-paced information that's just churning all the time. I, I thought something, and so I put it on, and then someone commented about, on that thing. It's just, everything's just this quick cycle. It's all trouble. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is that Scripture is the baseline, and our culture is longing for a baseline right now. Because all it's getting from everywhere, tweets and, and, and messages and, and notifications and breaking news and, and videos about cats and like all of these things are just these silly, high-frequency trouble things in our lives. And, and people are longing for something that's going to last longer than five minutes. Or as someone else said, it's all about that bass, right? There, there's a bass note, there's a drum beat to our lives that's deeper than that, that grounds us. And, and, and what we need to know is to come back to that baseline, or all of these shrill treble notes are going to be the things that are driving our lives. The Bible is that base note. It's a series of letters and poems and history and gospel, all of these put into one that's this long base note that stood the test of time, that still speaks life into our life, that speaks to the conversation about technology this many years later. It's ancient. And in our culture, we're longing for something ancient, aren't we? Something longer and older than the 13 seconds ago of your favorite celebrity who posted some photo. We're longing for something that has more resonance, that has more drumbeat. We're craving bass notes. Maybe you find yourself kind of craving that yourself. Where is the stable ground? Where is the thing that lasts beyond the new cycle? What's underneath all this? And if you're upset with the injustice in the world, what I want to say to you is, is that's not because of a trouble line that you saw and read in a tweet. The reason is because there's a baseline that's been beating for a long time now where God's concerned about the very same thing. One answer is there's a book called the Bible that has stood the test of time that lets us know that God cares deeply about justice in the world. We've sung about that already today. 
Or if you're upset about the authorities in your life who are dishonest and leading people away from where true life is found, one answer could be, read the book of Judges. Because humanity has been here before when we believed there was no God and every person saw as did as they saw fit. We need a base note. We need a resonance. We need something that's a lower frequency than the frequency we see on our phones all the time. And so I titled the sermon, No Mo Fomo, which is my best title ever written in a decade, i got to be honest. I had to say it at some point. We tend to reference these just in the past, but that's what we're calling for, right? Is we have this impulse, this fear about what we're missing out on, and what I want to encourage us is, drop that fear. But you can't get rid of a fear unless you replace it with something else. And that's what I want to suggest as we close is one more passage that I want us to look at. It's in Job chapter 28, which is a surprising place to look for a passage about technology. But I think that's exactly what Job is actually talking about in this passage. This gets lost because we tend to focus on Job 1 through 3, and then we kind of think the rest is just kind of the same, right? It's this trouble stuff. The deep stuff comes later. But this is interesting, I think, Job 28. I want to start reading in verse 1. Listen to this through this lens of trouble and base and and the FOMO that we are all doing. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft. In places untouched by human feet, far from other people, they dangle and sway. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Lapis lazuli, I got corrected on that in first service, so I'm trying to say it right, comes from its rocks, and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it, and no lion prowls there. People assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock. Their eyes see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. You hear what Job's describing? Generations, We've been mining the earth. We've been trying to find these precious metals from gold nuggets to iron to copper. And from those metals, we make things like iPhones and iPads, right? Those are the very things on the earth that we use to develop. We've been using technology for generations. We've been mining, looking for the river of life and anything that might satisfy us. But there's a question underneath that that Job leads with in verse 12. And I think it's our question in our day. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Right now in our culture, we have more information at our fingertips than we've ever had before, which means there's a lot of brilliance laying all around, but the problem is the internet is the largest gathering of foolishness and nonsense that's ever been created in the history of the world too, right? And so the the, the struggle for our kids is not going to a library and finding where the information is. That information is at their fingertips. The challenge for this generation, for school teachers and educators, isn't to get them the information. It's to figure out how to sort through it and find the good stuff and separate it from the bad stuff. It's to find the wheat and to separate it from the chaff. That's what you're doing as parents. I mean, they can find out any answer that they want by asking a question to Siri, right? But they don't necessarily know the way to wisdom. In fact, a lot of us are struggling to know the way to wisdom. What Job's saying is we've been searching all under the earth for all these valuable materials and we pulled them up and technology is great. But the deep under under question of all of this is where can wisdom be found? Where is understanding hidden? And I want to read on because Job actually gives us an answer. 
And it's not FOMO. Verse 20. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing. Concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it. He alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters. When he made a decree for the rain and a path to the thunderstorm. Then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Hear what God's saying, right? The serpent's been lying to you for a long time now. Saying that just around the corner, if you just dig a little deeper in the shaft of the earth, then you'll find that thing you've been longing for. But we have millennia of history to prove. We've been digging and digging and gathering and gathering, and it hasn't provided us the deepest questions that we long to know. Which is, where can wisdom be found? Where is understanding hidden? So FOMO, FOMO leads us on a search under the earth and across the oceans to find this very thing that God is the owner of. What Job says is, in the midst of his suffering, what Job says is, the place where you begin if you want to know where wisdom is, is you fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is the wisdom literature over and over again, the refrain, isn't it? If you want to know where wisdom's found, you don't go searching here and there. You don't go to the mystic or the tarot card reader. No, you go to the source of wisdom. God has it, and he doesn't hold it back when you ask for him. And a lot of us are struggling with this right now, aren't we? Because we can find every answer we want on Google. We can answer any question we want, but... When it comes to wisdom, it's a lot harder to figure out, isn't it? The source of wisdom is God. So what I want to encourage us as we close this morning is to think about this as we come forward to our technology. What does it look like for us to engage in wisdom in the midst of technology that provides us all the knowledge in the world? Some of you are really good at trivial pursuit. But a knowledge about some of those inane facts really doesn't matter when it comes to the hardest decisions of our lives. The source of that is God, and God is not greedy with that knowledge, with that wisdom. He wants to deliver and offer it to us. His Holy Spirit lives within us to help us discover those truths. So I want to push us back to the source of that truth uh, in the midst of this world. Our fear is not the fear of missing out. Our fear is that we would miss out on the source of life and wisdom, which is God himself. Let's pray as we close this morning. Our God, our Father, we, we thank you so much for the wisdom that you long to offer to us. And God, as this week as we make decisions about where we offer our time and what we decide not to do and the boundaries that we create in our lives, would you help us get rid of this fear that we might be missing out on the source of joy and hope and peace in our lives. God, and when we realize once again that it's your spirit that indwells us, that leads us toward truth, that reminds us of everything that Jesus, your son, taught us while he was on the earth. So God, this week, would you encourage us? Would you help us to find this wisdom? Would you help us to do this in community together? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.